Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Welcome to Small Business Digest on Blog Talk Radio. Now entering its fifth year, this show is hosted by Don Mazella, Editorial Director of Small Business Digest. Each week he brings you advice and information from experts and small business leaders like yourself. Each show is designed to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas from authors, experts, and small business leaders, just like most of the individuals who make up our audience. Whenever possible, Small Business Digest tests the products and services featured on the show to ensure they are of a quality to help listeners grow their small business. Guests do not pay to appear, but are chosen for their ability to provide ideas and suggestions to improve operations, expand marketing, reduce cost, enable better personnel management, and add profits. Remember, all of our shows are archived at www.blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. You can hear this show and all others at your leisure. If you like what you hear, tell others about the program. If you have a question or suggestion, email us at editor at is-incorp.com. Should you want to join us on this program during our live hour each Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, dial 646-929-2337. That's editor at is-incorp.com or 646-929-2337. We're only as good as our guest and audience make us. I'm particularly happy today to welcome back Heather Wagonhall. She's with us to talk about uh, what I find is an interesting subject, cell phone and what it's going to mean to you, uh, logging in and, and using it for a lot of other tools. Heather, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me back, Don. Well, Heather, first, tell us, uh, I, I know a little bit about you, but our audience does it. Tell us a little bit about your background and, and uh, uh, some websites they can uh, find out more. Uh, just to give us some general background before we go into the subject itself. Well, we're going to talk about money, credit, and you with regard to identity theft, frauds, and scams. And in addition to being a personal finance expert, I take a biology-based approach to money management and success. And and what that means is we already know what we should be doing with regard to managing our money or, or, or protecting our identity, but we don't. And so that's how I've become one of the leading experts on identity theft, frauds and scams because I have um, over the years, in addition to being a victim of identity theft multiple times, and it starts in some of the craziest places, I've had to deal with that when I was in the mortgage business and the securities business with people um, committing fraud or unable to apply for credit um, or get the quality credit they deserve because they were compromised in some way and someone had um, taken nefarious action with their confidential information. And so now my mission is to help a billion people achieve financial freedom, and part of that has to do 
with being able to protect your identity and your assets. And it's becoming increasingly more difficult in this digital age. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, I, I just yesterday, I heard of someone that had um, been the victim of an identity uh, theft, uh, even after the fact that he had purchased one of the more widely advertised uh, um, uh, theft prevention systems, but uh, still it happened to him and it ha it's happening increasingly. But um, before we go further, can you give us one or two or three uh, simple uh, things people should do uh, to protect themselves before we talk about anything else? Because you, you've hit on a subject that uh, right, right now um, is close to my home. Yeah, so, well, if you were to take some simple actions, this actually goes back to what I talk about on my Unlock Your Wealth radio program, and that is we have to do the things that make us uncomfortable in order to be, quote, secure to the best of our ability. So we can't be storing passwords on our computers. We can't be picking fluffy our cute little, you know, dachshund as our password and then be posting how much we love Fluffy with pictures of Fluffy on our social media. So that's one thing we have to do is, is we have to uh, be willing to uh, take the long way. So that three milliseconds that you've saved by having your, your password stored in your browser it, it has actually destroyed you financially. So that's one thing that you can do. At, and always question when people ask you for information regardless of what it is especially your social security number. The only person that ever needs your social security number is the IRS, and if you are claiming government benefits, there is no reason why a medical doctor or a dentist or any other company needs your social security number. If you're dealing with insurance, you have an insurance customer ID. They don't need your social. I was just somewhere... Um, and I went to an eye doctor, and they wanted me to update my records and put my social security number down if I was going to use a credit card. And I said, I beg your pardon? In addition to being a customer there a long time, they were asking it for me, and they're like, well, in case there's a problem. And I said, you have no legal right to ask for that, and if I choose not to offer it, guess what? You ain't getting it. So you can see me and make the money because I'm a cash-pay client, or, or you can – and just I'm me getting a social security, giving you my social, and I'm going to walk out the door. And, of course, they took the money. And so all you have to do is stand your ground. Nobody needs your data. You know, when you go to check out at the, at the grocery store, can I have your email address? Can I have your phone number? You know, what are they doing? They're data mining. They're compiling data. When you give over that stuff, they're compiling your shopping habits. And they're selling that data to marketing companies who, in turn, sell your data. And at some point, somebody with a nefarious intent is going to capture that information. You know, you, you're so so right. Uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you a story that follows that one. Uh, I'm having trouble with my back, and I've been given a, a, a prescription to go and have physical therapy for it. But uh, and sure enough, I, I started getting calls from from uh, companies that said, "Well, look, we will order a back." Uh, uh, device for you from from social, uh, from Medicare. You don't have to do a thing, but just uh, 
give us that. How did they know I had a back problem? And how did they have all the details? Uh, down to the fact that, uh, 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 including my um, uh, Medicare number. You know, it was a, a really amazing. When I went back and talked to the um, <clears throat> uh, physical therapy company, which is one of the most respected in the country, they said, well, of course we do that. It's a subsidiary of ours. Uh, so <laughs> they got an earful from me. So yes, you're absolutely but you can revoke that. You can revoke that. You have the right to not disclose that. They should, on those HIPAA forms, you should have had the option to opt out of data sharing. I did. So, so oh, so you opted out and they still did it anyway? Yes. Absolutely. Another thing you should do is always ask for a copy. Anytime you fill out an application for something, always ask for them to Xerox a copy of it so you know okay. exactly what you signed. So they can't go destroy the document and say, oh, we don't have that on file for you. Oh, yeah. Mm. Or just take a picture with your phone. But if you have them copy it and get a physical copy, it puts them on notice. That's very good advice. Tim, on notice but, that you're being a savvy computer consumer. Well, uh, my my wife is a savvy computer uh, uh, consumer, not me. But before we go further, uh, uh, people want to hear your program, know about your program. How do they find it? Well, if folks want to listen to my personal finance show, they can visit me. I'm syndicated in pockets all over America, but the best way to find me would be at unlockyourwealthradio.com. And then you can look up showtimes and listings in your area of where it's being syndicated. Or you can listen. I mean, we repeat right here on Blog Talk Radio, so you can find me here. I'm on the Libsyn platform. I'm on iTunes. You know, just Unlock Your Wealth Radio or Heather Wagonhall, you know, if you Google those terms, that should get you there. And if you would like more information on how to avoid identity theft, frauds, and scams, and the latest details regarding any data breaches or big hacks or whether or not you've been compromised, you can find valuable tools at moneycreditandyou.com. Say that one again, because uh, and please spell it out for my audience. We're slow. <laughs> That's okay. They're not slow that they're savvy and they're busy doing other things. They're multitasking. That's money, credit, and you.com. M-O-N-E-Y-C-R-E-D-I-T-A-N-D-Y-O-U.com. You can laugh at that, Heather, but I've actually had people email me saying I don't ask people to spell it out for them. So uh, uh, I'm only following what my audience asked me to do. But um, uh, I usually put, and, the, uh, put the links in your show page. That's what I usually do with my guests. I put all of those good things on the show page. Well, I, uh, I should, and I, uh, I sometimes do, but I, I'm multitasking, and uh, um, uh, I guess at times I, I get, get too lazy. But to, but you're you're absolutely right, uh, and I I will. For you, uh, especially, I will uh, put it on um, our uh, sheet <coughs> when we finish this program. Um, but now, let, uh, let's get on. You, uh, one of the reasons you're here to talk about how your um, uh, cell phone is, is becoming increasingly a, an important tool. In, in, uh, and you want to explain that? Because I found that fascinating. 
Yes. So if you think about it now, and I think back to when I was in high school, like 30 years ago, um, well, 33, because I'm talking about being a freshman, uh, that, you know, I was programming in basic. And if you would have told me that I would have been able to carry a device in my pocket or handbag that could think faster than the entire room of computers I was sitting in, I would have said you were nuts. Uh, additionally, if you would have ever asked me for my social security number, I would have said, whatever, you don't need that. But when people ask us for our mobile number, we don't think anything of it. We give it away at the grocery store. We give it away for rewards cards. We give it away, you know, when we meet people. We just we're giving it away, giving it away. And this is an opportunity for would-be hackers and scammers to invade your device and either search for your stored passwords on your device or use that information to access a variety of websites. You know, now our, our phone number is, if you call up for customer service anywhere, let's say you're having a problem with your uh, satellite TV provider, and you call in on the phone number that's registered on your account, you're auto-validated. You're auto-validated. So now you can change addresses, you can make charges, you can change account information. Just by, and you can spoof that phone number. I can make my phone um, use your phone number as an outgoing number. And so I can become you rather quickly. And it's because we've had these devices attached to us almost permanently now that, that this number has become increasingly more valuable in the sense of marketing, in the sense of you know, uh, security validation. And that's a scary thing. Well, you know, uh, I point out to some of my classes, the fact is uh, you have enough uh, computing power in your uh, uh, iPhone that, uh, that that was greater than what put man on the moon. It's hard to imagine, but that's true. And uh, it's fascinating. But uh, along on this subject, Heather, um, extend it. Um, how how can we, uh, given all this, how can we prevent pe people from taking advantage of us, and and uh, also how can we use it as a powerful tool tool for ourselves? Well, so when it comes to the technology, how do we protect ourselves? We have to be aware because this has to do with the brain. So if we feel comfortable, I mean, think about Bernie Madoff for a minute. He didn't scam strangers. He scammed the people he was closest to, all right? I have had my identity compromised more than once, and it was because of a relative, a person whom you would think shouldn't be using my identity. I had a parent compromise my identity more than once. And they had all these justifications as to why they did that and how it was important and how I should deal with it. And, and, and that's why so many of these places get away with it. If we just take the digital aspect and the hacking aspect out of it, you know, uh, 20 years ago, if there was a problem with identity theft, nine times out of ten you knew who the person was. And they used that to their advantage because how many people are going to send their mom to jail? 
I remember when I was trying to undo a bunch of this stuff that she, that my mother had done to me. You know, the challenge wasn't that whether or not she was guilty. I had to file fraud charges against her in order for these companies to absolve me of the responsibility to pay for it. They're like, sure, we'll delete these charges. Just provide us the police report you filed. And I'm thinking, okay. So my mother just screwed me because she, she's playing on the fact that I'm her daughter and that no matter how angry I'll get, I'll probably just pay the bill and I won't send her to jail. And that's what most people do. So now, now you add into this, dig, this digital realm of people. Um, if you protect yourself with passwords, if you avoid clickbait and those salacious articles that say childhood stars, see where they are now, you know, and, and you avoid going to websites where that stuff is maliciously downloaded onto your computer, if you refuse to open up email that you haven't openly solicited and delete it or forward it along to the government at spam at uce.gov, which is the FTC's spam arm where they try to go after that um, stuff, then you can live fairly confidently. Most of the time, we're not hacked. Most of the time, we're tricked out of our information. That's the bigger problem. Fascinating. Um, uh, not to open all wounds, but but you you've just uh, uh, said something that really uh, uh, resonated with me when you say that the people cl often uh, close to you are the ones that uh, um, uh, sometimes uh, scam you because. Uh, uh, I, I thought it was rare. Uh, I had a, a second cousin whose um, um, uh, daughter did exactly the same same thing to her, and um, it took her almost a year to unravel the mess. Um, and uh, you said something else, which uh, I, I didn't realize. Um, she also had to uh, formally charge her do her own daughter. So it, it's. Uh, uh, you, you've opened a whole new area for us to, to discuss, uh, but we're unfortunately running uh, uh, close to the end of our time together. But Heather, um, having said all this, um, do you have any uh, uh, thoughts you'd like to pass on to our, our listeners? Well, just to be aware, be in your moment. Do not let the rush and hectic pace of your life overwhelm your ability to make decisions in the moment because that's where we always get into trouble. Our natural biological drives towards pleasure and away from pain are what get us into trouble most of the time. That's why it's, you know, it, it takes, like I said, three more milliseconds to type in and remember a difficult password. And so we avoid that pain. You know, because we want to hurry up and get to what we want to get to. When somebody calls and says, hey, your warranty is expiring, you need to re-up it, and you're like, oh, okay, and you didn't even verify that they're calling from your car manufacturer or whomever you bought the extended warranty from, and you're just handing over your credit card information because you're thinking they're doing you a favor. You need to be aware. You've got to be in the moment. 
It's not just a Buddhist phenomenon or fad. It's something that you need to practice every day, and that's being in the moment. Like you and I were joking about multitasking. Multitasking is ineffective, and that's what gets us into trouble because we can't concentrate um, on many things. Six, uh, seven to nine things, plus or minus two in any given moment consciously, but yet four billion bits of information pass at a given moment subconsciously. And so we're not driven by our conscious discipline. We're driven by our subconscious behavior, and that's, again, towards pleasure and away from pain. And so being aware in the moment is the best defense that we have against all of this. Well, you've got to come back and expand on that point. Heather, tell people how they can reach you uh, in your website. Absolutely. For the best in biology-based money management radio programming, visit unlockyourwealthradio.com. And to protect yourself against identity theft, frauds, and scams, get the latest news at moneycreditandyou.com. Thank you so much for joining us today, Heather. You've got to come back and talk some more. Thank you. Oh, the pleasure was mine. You make it a prosperous day, Don. Oh, you too. Our next guest is Timothy Trainer, who is another um, what I who I find fascinating. Timothy, welcome to the program. Thank you, Don. Good to be here. Uh, Timothy, tell our audience a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you can uh, they can reach you before we do anything else. Uh, my background, uh, I guess my most recent thing is in writing a book called uh, The Fortunate Son, Top Through the Eyes of Others, my experience uh, as an Army brat growing up in the 50s, 60s, early 70s, and then uh, years later getting together with a group of uh, Vietnam veterans who served with my father during his second tour of duty in Vietnam in the late 60s. Um, the book, uh, you can get a hold of me through uh, through the book website, it's uh, www.thefortunatesun.com. Well, uh, that's a great title. Um, uh, so tell us a, a little. Uh, uh, I was not a veteran of, of the Vietnam War. I was a correspondent. So you're t kind of talking to my generation a little bit. Uh, but uh, uh, the question I always ask an author why did you write the book, and what did you learn from the book? I wrote the book primarily because of the uh, guys that uh, served with my father in Vietnam in 68 and 69. Um, I got to know them maybe about 15 years ago and started uh, attending their uh, reunions and then their summer gatherings, got to know them much better. And we've really become very close-knit. Uh, close uh, they would tell me a lot of things about what it was like to serve with my father. Most of these guys were 19, 20-year-old draftees in 1968-69. My father by then was in his mid-30s. He'd already fought in Korea, and it was his second tour of uh, duty in Vietnam. So uh, they looked to him to help them get through a few scrapes and firefights. And they're the ones that prodded me to write the book, actually. And uh, so it's really a story about a lot of these young men who found themselves being uh, at one point teenagers and within six, eight months being in the jungles of Vietnam. And, and they really wanted to, to, for me to understand what it was like having my father, who was an experienced combat uh, soldier, around to help them get through those tough times. 
Well, what, what rank was your father? Well, when he retired in 1971, he was a first sergeant, and that was the uh, rank he had in Vietnam. He was the highest-ranking non-commissioned officer of a rifle company. Uh, he served as a, uh, with who is now many people probably uh, may be familiar with General McCaffrey. He's on TV a lot as a military consultant for MSNBC. But uh, at that time, Barry was a captain and he was the company commander about 10 years younger than my father. And they teamed together to, to run this uh, infantry company that was constantly uh, in the jungles uh, engaging the enemy. What what division were they with? Uh, it was uh, 7th Cavalry Regiment, 1st uh, Air Cav oh. Division. Uh, okay, so, uh, one of the more yeah. elite units. Yeah, um, yeah, and it was actually, the, the irony there is my father in 1950 when he arrived in Korea and was in the Korean War was also in the 1st Cav Division. You know, uh, as a correspondent, you always wanted to go with the elite, with the uh, the elite divisions, because you know you were you would be in the combat more, but you at least be with you know, with people who knew what they were doing, and uh, uh, and the first cavalry obviously was, was one of the best uh, units um, um, around. Unfortunately, they they've got a, uh, as you know they got a bad reputation. Because of the movie uh, Apocalypse, uh, Apocalypse Now, where the, uh, 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 Robert Duval was the, the com division commander. Um, but now, uh, having said that, uh, Tim, uh, uh, what did you get out of the book um, when you finished writing it? Well, I, I think what what you find is that. We all we all go to war in a sense. So whether it's the the men who are in the in in the battle zone, but also those of us who are family members of career soldiers, or it doesn't have to be a career soldier, but someone who's in the military in, in a time of war and and is deployed to a war zone, their families are are at war as well, serving, if you will. Uh, so in in many ways, we're all experiencing. A war, but just from a different perspective, uh, and and it's uh, it, it was interesting to the the guys that, that that I've come to know very well, because being 19, 20 years old, they most of them were not married, they didn't have families yet, and so they hadn't given much thought to the sacrifices made by a career soldier's family uh, until we started getting together on a regular basis and talking about what. What, what we on the home front were going through uh, while they were in the combat zone. And as a, as a result of these exchanges, we've just become very, very close, very close-knit group of people. That's very true. Last week I, I had on this program, uh, uh, quite fortuitously, uh, a new book is out about um, military families. Um, and uh, I had the... Um, uh, the woman who wrote the forward about it, and uh, know a little bit of, about about military families, uh, not being involved myself outside of uh, having reported it at times. So I know that uh, I have a feeling of some of the sacrifices. And uh, what are some of the sacrifices that you went through, and you see other people going through, that uh, armed forces families have? 
Well, certainly the, the one sacrifice is uh, oftentimes being without a, a parent at home. And so, you know, that flows down and, and has an impact on everybody else in the family, whether it's uh, everyday responsibilities, tasks, uh, depending on the age of the, certainly the children, depending upon all the responsi- responsibilities they have to take on uh, when a parent you know is going to be gone for a, a, you know, a period of a, a year or whatever it may be. Uh, and, and so depending upon where you are in that family structure, your age, so on, uh, lots of things flow downhill when it comes to those responsibilities. In my case, uh, back in the 60s, uh, my mother was Japanese, and so she, her, her English writing and reading skills were very, very limited. So for me, uh, I was responsible basically for re- reading all the letters my father wrote home and then writing all the letters going to him. Uh, as well as taking care of monthly bills and such things. And so it, it was uh, very different being in, in that kind of uh, situation, as well as, of course, my job was to go to school every day and do those things as well. Um, and the other part of it that, that was certainly different then than it is now is uh, we lived in a civilian community in Ohio, nowhere near a military post. Uh, so you you are really in a in a different environment simply because you're not around a military uh, installation with the support that might be there if you had stayed with the military community. You you, you move, you have new friends, new school, completely new environment. So all those things can put stress a certain on, on the children, but also on the remaining parent that has to then take care of the household for whatever period uh, that deployment term is. Well, that's really that's that's really interesting. Uh, um, do you think you're, you're the better for the experience? I think I personally am. Yes, I certainly don't want to speak for others that have had to go through the same thing. I mean, fortunately for us, we we had a good outcome. My father came home. Uh, I mean, yes, he he earned enough. At the end of the day, uh, you know, it's it's helped me as far as being adaptable to a lot of different situations. And uh, change is not one of those things that bothers me because of all the all the moving we did. Um, I went to ten schools during my twelve years of schooling. By the time I graduated from high school, uh, and and I I don't even want to think about how many times we actually moved uh, residences because of his time in the army, but. You you learn you better learn how to adapt and make friends and and get moving with life because uh, that's just the way it was. Well, what is what has your career been like from from high well, school I, onward? <laughs> well, uh, I I myself a year after my father left the army, I graduated and went and I did my three years of active duty and then went to college got. Uh, multiple degrees. I'm, I've been a lawyer here in the Washington, D.C. area for uh, roughly the last 30 years, uh, and, I, and I've traveled extensively through those jobs, whether it's federal government jobs or private sector jobs. And uh, these days, I'm a consultant. I still do some travel uh, for, for work, uh, but I also stay in touch, of course, with the, the veterans that uh, served with my father. So uh, the moving around or, or certainly traveling to strange and foreign places, it doesn't bother me. Uh, in fact, it, uh, it's interesting to do that, uh, go to new places and uh, see, uh, meet new people. Uh, and I've been fortunate enough to, to go to Vietnam a few times on business trips. Uh, and that's been very interesting uh, just to go to a country where, you know, these men, my father served uh, during the time of war. I've been fortunate enough to be there uh, for business. 
That's very true. But um, you've written this book. You've done all of this. What do you intend to do uh, next? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not going to go back to probably writing something like this. It's, it was a very, in many ways, a difficult book simply because you, you're getting the stories of these guys, their, their tour of duty, their term, term in the Army, um, and that was a difficult write. Uh, maybe in the future I might try my hand, go back to a little fiction writing, but uh, also continue working and hope that uh, I get some more opportunities opportunities to go to some interesting places uh, through my work as well. But uh, uh, I still am doing my legal work here in the D.C. area. Um, but uh, the book was uh, certainly an interesting book. Uh, and, you know, for your readers who want to read something that's not too long, certainly not political in any way, but it, it's a story about 14 guys who were drafted and and then uh, on the parallel side of that, their term in Vietnam versus my my time at, on the home front uh, while my father was there with them. So it, it, it's a, a different way of looking at those two, two sides of, of that experience. Well, what's the name of your book? It's The Fortunate Son, Top through the eyes of others. And it's because top, which is a nickname for a first sergeant, uh, it's really seeing my father through their experiences with him. So um, I never interviewed my father for the book, but I, I certainly had these 14 guys that were willing to talk about their experience and, and how they, they saw uh, serving with my father in Vietnam. Is your father still with us? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. He's uh a little frail these days, uh, mid '80s, but uh, he he still has that uh, spirit, uh, and I, I sometimes wonder if he still wishes he could get up in the morning and uh, put the uniform on and go to work, even though he may not want to be shot at anymore. But uh, he still, uh, I think he's still close to these guys. They they keep in contact with him, make sure he's okay. Well, um, uh, uh. Do you also give a brief uh, biography of what what these uh, uh, fellows uh, uh, did later on in life? Um, not well, not so much in their later years. It, a lot of the, the book really focuses on how they ended up, you know, their, their experience getting drafted, uh, their experiences, uh, basic training. And then all of a sudden finding themselves uh, in Vietnam and then uh, some of their experiences both with some maybe questionable leadership at the beginning and then the teaming up of uh, uh, Barry McCaffrey, my father, as the company commander and first sergeant and how that changed things and, and, and made them feel like they could actually survive their year tour of duty in Vietnam and get home. And uh, there's some about the post-Vietnam period as they started to reunite years later. Uh, a lot of them didn't want to reunite necessarily right away, but as time passed, uh, they now get together on a regular basis uh, and, and realize how important that period of time was in, in bonding with with each other. Uh, and uh, it's it's uh, and, and I'm sure most of your listeners have heard about these things in the past. That guys who serve together when the bullets have been flying tend to form the kind of bond that's very hard to put into words actually you're so accurate you're so accurate on that uh, that point i have a friend of mine who's a west point graduate 
And he says one of the problems uh, with Vietnam was that uh, uh, the rotations were individual and not uh, unit-based in and out of the period, and hence there was no cohesion uh, uh, involved. Uh, uh, do you address that issue at all? I do, actually, in the book. Uh, as each of these guys uh, arrive in Vietnam, in fact, in order for me to get a picture of how long they were actually with each other, uh, I put a, a little table together at the beginning of the book so people could see where the overlap was as far as time in Vietnam because uh, there, there, there were times when guys served together maybe only for a couple of months just because of, your, as you say, this rotation, period, uh, rotation system uh, did not really do much for guys knowing each other for very long or at all. You know, they arrived as replacements one by one or two by two, and that was it. And they got plugged into a platoon or a squad as needed. Um, and, and some of them may have been together in Vietnam maybe a month, maybe three months or six months. But certainly they did not arrive as units, and they didn't go home as units. Um, and actually I explained that a little bit with regard to one of the forward artillery observers he and my father were in the company together only for about four or five, six weeks at the most. Uh, and yet uh, he was so uh, impressed by the way things were during those five weeks that uh, he contributed to the book because as far as he was concerned, the leadership that Barry McCaffrey and my father provided to that company uh, during the five weeks that he was there with both of them uh, impressed him so much for the rest of his life. And, and, you know, this is something that happened to him when he was in his early 20s. And here, you know, 50 years later, practically, uh, it, it's still that clear in his mind that that uh, they, they were that impressive as far as their leadership. Well, that's a very, very important point uh, that uh, uh, I think we should uh, hold on to. Uh, we're talking with Timothy Trainer. He's uh, written a, a, a wonderful book called the Fortunate Son, uh, which you can get uh, the website again, uh, Timothy, Tim? Uh, it's uh, thefortunatesun.com, but you can certainly order the book at, on Amazon or uh, on Barnes & Noble, either either one. Just go on their website and look up The Fortunate Son or under my name, Timothy Trainer, you should be able to find the book. Uh, Timothy, uh, Tim, thanks so much for being with us. You, 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 for me, you bring back uh, memories, some good, some bad, but uh, still, uh, uh, the, uh, someone once said the comradeship of the foxhole is something uh, you can only appreciate by experiencing it. Yes, and uh, Don, thank you very much for having me. Well, have a good, really good day. Thank you, you too. Want to know more about health savings accounts for your company or yourself? Go to 2hsa.com and get a free employer's primer. Health savings accounts are a cost-effective way of offering health care benefits to your employees and yourself. HSAs build retirement funds for your employees, improve morale, and reduce your health care benefit costs. For a free employer guide to HSAs, go to 2hsa.com. That's 2 
2HSA.com. Just how dangerous is social networking? Use of websites like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube are all the rage. But what are the downsides of this new technology? The incidents of bullying, stalking, harassment, and inappropriate content are increasing. Just how dangerous is it? What can you do to protect your child and yourself from it? Go to protectivecountermeasures.com for a free hour-long video on the dangers of social networking. That's protectivecountermeasures.com for your free hour-long video. Our next guest is Matt uh, Nye. He's talking about, amongst other things, the myths of presidential uh, vacations. He's chairman of the Republican Liberty Caucus, uh, innovative entrepreneur, and um, I don't know, uh, a seasoned political activist. I don't know uh, what what that means, but we're going to find out. Uh, Matt, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate it. Well, you know, here in New Jersey, uh, our newspapers are complaining that the, uh, when President Trump comes, uh, the air traffic control uh, goes um, uh, kablooey. Uh, of course, they didn't complain when President Obama did it, but uh, they are complaining about President Trump. But um, uh, tell us about, uh, uh, first, tell us a little bit about yourself and then uh, about presidential vacations. Sure. So uh, my background, basically, up until about eight years ago, I was a typical American, didn't pay attention to politics, uh, basically, you know, threw my shoe at the TV every now and again because of the stupidity that was going on. Um, but uh, got involved with the Ron Paul campaign. Uh, somebody introduced me to uh, actually introduced me to the fair tax, and then uh, Ron Paul's came, name came up in the context of that discussion and ended up uh, Working on his presidential campaign, of course, he didn't uh, succeed with that, uh, but I got involved with an organization called the Republican Liberty Caucus, which is basically the libertarian wing of the Republican Party, and uh, ended up you know, starting my – there used to be a charter, a local charter in my area that had uh, kind of gone defunct, and so I started that over and then basically worked my way up uh, – uh, through the ranks, you know, became the state treasurer, then the state chair, and then the national treasurer, and then I was elected national chair in 2013. So um, basically, if your listeners are familiar with uh, Congressman Amash or Thomas Massey, uh, Mark Sanford, those are the guys on the House side that we've traditionally supported, and then on the Senate side, Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, um, those are the types of candidates that the Republican Liberty Caucus uh, endorses. Ah. Okay. Uh, um, now, having said that, tell us a little bit about uh, uh, presidential vac- vacations from your point of view. Sure. Well, I mean, the one thing you can be sure of is that uh, whichever side is in power, the other side will complain about the vacations that that president is taking, right? So um, if you look back historically, uh you know the this the stats on this stuff are kind of hit or miss uh there's some wikipedia entries and some things like that that you can pull up um but you know bill clinton and it's kind of interesting they have a breakdown of how many vacations right so they've got a column for a quote unquote vacations and they've got a column for number of days and then of course they've got a column for the cost 
And, uh, you know, when Clinton was in office, they're showing 41 vacations for a total of 274 days at a cost of $128 million. Uh, George W. Bush, they show 88 vacations, total of 533 days at a cost of $140 million. Uh, Obama's 28 vacations, 217 days, somewhere between 85 and 96 million, depending on which uh, group's cost estimates you look at. And then the big thing, though, that you're seeing now in the news is with all of Trump's travel to Mar-a-Lago, uh, they're projecting it, it's going to be just insane. They're saying that his costs, uh, he's already exceeded or going to exceed Obama's entire eight years in his first year. Um, but there's a little wiggle room there because they're using an estimate, I think, of $3 million per weekend or something like that for the Mar-a-Lago trips, and I've read some kind of contradictory information that says it could be a million bucks. But bottom line is uh, it looks like because of the size of Trump's family and the way that he's you know, moving between South Florida and then up there in New York uh, that he's going to – you know, it looks like he'll definitely exceed – uh, even if you use the lower cost estimates, he's probably going to exceed all the prior, you know, presidential uh, vacations. So, oh, so what else is new? The only reason I say that I don't care. Um, uh, I, I like to think of myself as an independent uh, journalist, but no, I don't think no matter what uh, President Trump does. The media will find some way of, of twisting it uh, into a negative. So, um, uh, having uh, said what you said, um, uh, well, I, I, I say so what? I mean, uh, that, I, uh, I'm, I'm actually inclined to. Yes, I'm inclined to agree with you. It's uh, of all the things we've got going on right now. Uh, you know, with North Korea and all these other issues, uh, this is pretty piddly uh, stuff, quite frankly. So, I, you know, it, it's just uh, one of those things that uh, it's kind of kind of an annoying thing about politics, right? Is they they tend to gravitate to to some fairly petty <laughs> petty issues. Well, you know, Matt, uh, in today's post, the, the, the uh, New York Post, the the story is about um, his wife's uh, high heels. Uh, you know, if she could walk in and I say, God bless her, I could never do it. Uh, but uh, they complained that she wore high heels on a on a, a trip down to Houston. You know, I mean, uh, uh, come on already. Uh, they didn't put the fact that he went there. They put the fact that she wore high heels. Right. And I sit there and said, my right. God, oh, they, they sure can't find ways of uh, uh, saying no. Yeah, and it's funny because I think I saw somewhere somebody had made an analogy that she was like a modern-day Marie Antoinette, and I'm just like, how do you get from one to the other? You know, that's a pretty uh, pretty crazy analogy. So I uh, no, I tend to agree that, that uh, uh, regardless of which, you know, whoever's in power, the other side seems to go out of their way to, uh, you know, like you say, pick one – you know, pick nits. These are – uh, complete non-issues. Uh, again, you've got you know you, you've got major legitimate policy failures and things to discuss. You know, and, and of course you've got some wins. You know, some things that he's accomplished as well. So, uh, I'm I much prefer, and uh, we at the Republican Liberty Caucus, you know, prefer, like you said, objective. You know, report the facts, stick to the facts. You know, stay away from the personal attacks and these types of petty. 
um, you know, if you like you say, if you do a, an analysis of the vacations and Trump does end up spending uh, more again, though, you you just kind of have some of this you have to take as, you know, cost of having a president. Right. Because, uh, you know, some presidents are going to have larger families than other and others. And so it's going to cost more, you know, when they go on vacation, I guess, you know, if they wanted to be really fair, they could break it out per you know, per capita, you know, per head, per member of the family or something like that. But again, it's all, you know, this is pretty, pretty petty stuff. You look at, you know, the big issues, uh, you know, the failure to repeal Obamacare, things like that, you know, where's the tax reform going? I mean, you've got lots of other things that are much more, you know, relevant. So. Well, let's turn this into a somewhat political uh, show for uh, which I normally don't do, but to, since uh, we have a chance to, to talk to someone from the libertarian side of the Republican Party, um, uh, uh, clearly the Republicans have failed in, in, in one of their major uh, promises to repeal Obamacare. Uh, now, um, uh, how do you feel about that? And um, uh, what do you think uh, Trump has to do and the Republican Party has to do to uh, redeem themselves. Uh, get right, get at a minimum, get it repealed. So, I, in terms of how do I feel uh, disappointed, frustrated, um, deceived? You know, I think those are uh, words that most Republican voters would use at this point. You know, very clearly, we've been promised over and over and over again for the last seven years. That they would repeal Obamacare uh, if they were given the opportunity, you know, given the House, given the Senate, given the presidency, they've got all of those things. They failed to follow through, and what I I don't think they realize, you know, just kind of stepping away and looking at it from a macro perspective, if they don't follow through on these promises and actually, they they miss the opportunity where they could have just repealed it, right? They they had uh, Rand Paul and those guys had gotten them to vote on a straight repeal. They could have voted to repeal it and then taken the time they needed to come up with something different, uh, you know, from a reform perspective, they didn't do that. And so now they've, you know, they've got absolutely nothing to show for their efforts. I don't think they're going to have anything. I think the, the best that they're going to come up with is some sort of very watered down Obamacare light. And what I don't think they're realizing is that in 2018, all of the Republicans that have turned out to vote Republican for the last seven years are not going to be very motivated to go to the polls because they're going to say, well, what's the point? Right? We've already seen this movie. You made these promises. We gave you the power, and you didn't follow through. And so the issue you know, is not going to be so much about the Republicans versus the Democrats in 2018. The issue that the Republicans have is it's going to be the complacency, right? the, lack, the, the, the lack of turnout for the Republicans to come and vote. And so it's not that the Democrats are going to offer, you know, some great, you know, better plan in 2018. It's going to be that the Republicans are so uh, disgruntled they're not going to come out and vote. And so that's, I think, what they're missing. Uh, and it's, you know, they're going to pay a price for it. So. Okay. Since this is a program of small business, what is your, you and your wing of the Republican Party? I uh, believe should be done for small business. Uh, get out of the way. So the good news is, uh, you know, we're, we're for free markets. We're for individual rights. Uh, so that is one of the things that Trump has done very well is repealing the regulatory, reforming the regulatory environment. So 
The last number I saw, I think he's running a ratio of like 16 or 17 regulations removed for every new one that's going into place. Uh, so clearly that's going in the right direction. Uh, you know, the, just getting the government out of the way, the EPA, OSHA, all of those regulatory agencies that are crushing uh, small businesses from a regulatory standpoint, he has the ability through executive orders and just through, you know, normal chain of command and, and replacing uh, employees in those administrations to really uh, streamline, you know, make it easier for businesses to operate in this country. So uh, that's a biggie. And, you know, he gets big kudos for doing what he's done so far. The other thing, like we mentioned before, though, was tax reform. Uh, and again, this should be an absolute, you know, just slam dunk for Republicans. That's what they're supposed to be about, right? Is the Republican platform supposed to be, you know, less government, lower taxes, more freedom? So here we are, you mm -hmm. know, they've got the opportunity to reform taxes. And if they just go in and cut uh, the corporate tax rate, simplify the tax code, I mean, they could be, you know, there, there are, we, we will reap benefits of that for decades to come if, if you know, they make the right changes. Well, uh, I happen to agree with you on, on the, those points. Um, and I, uh, I, I have to, as a journalist, I have to uh, try, try to be uh, down the middle on the, these issues. Um, do you feel that, um, uh, uh, that President Trump's uh, cabinet officials um, uh, are doing the job that um, uh, they were uh, he was elected to do while he's taken all the heat? Uh, I, it's hard to say. I mean, with the changes, you know, I, the, there's definitely been a disconnect between in terms of communication, right? So you've seen uh, a drastic reduction in appearances from Kellyanne Conway and these other people uh, because it seems like they have, you know, they have one message and then the president will do something that contradicts them. You know, of course, you got the turnover. Uh, with Reince Priebus and then now Steve Bannon being gone. So I'm not sure, uh, in my understanding too, is there's still a lot of people appointments that haven't been made. There are positions uh, that Trump hasn't filled, and because of that, you've got a lot of holdovers from the Obama administration that are you know, basically hurting him. They're certainly not helping him. Uh, so it's kind of hard. That, that looks pretty chaotic to me, and if you – you know, if you step back, it, it kind of, you know, he was using the whole drain the swamp theme. It looks like it's going the other way around and the swamp is draining him. Like it, it seems to be that he's losing uh, with the exodus of people like Steve Bannon and the people uh, that are staying. It seems to be more establishment. You know what I mean? Like the administration is moving towards a kind of a more status quo uh, type administration, and the problem with that, of course, is that the people that voted for Trump don't want the status quo. That's why I got elected. Mm -hmm. You're very, very accurate. Um, and, uh, having said all that, do you feel um, um, that there's hope yet that the, the Trump administration will deliver uh, on its various promises? Uh, I, I am I am hopeful, but I that hope is waning as time goes by. So I'm less optimistic. The the longer they go without getting one of these major things done, be it health you know healthcare reform or uh, tax reform, 
they it, that's why they always focus on the first hundred days of the presidency because that's really when they're you know they come hard charging out of the gate they don't have to worry about the the next election cycle uh and that's why it's so important that that first hundred days kind of sets the tone and he did not get off to a good start uh with the way you know the health care reform bill and these other things have shaken out so uh i i am still hopeful but i think this is one of those the the, the longer this goes without some sort of significant progress, the more likely it is that he gets kind of sucked up into the, you know, into the establishment. And and I, and I don't even want to say it's not so much that he becomes part of the establishment; it just becomes he's he's ineffective, right? He's effectively neutered uh, by the establishment. Um, how, how do people reach you and uh, learn about more about you? Sure. Uh, so they can go to rlc.org. Like I said, we're a grassroots 527 under the IRS. We've been around since 1991. Website's at rlc.org. Uh, you can go there and learn more about charters in your state. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at our Liberty Caucus. Matt, thank you very much for, for being with us. Um, uh, I try to, try to stay pretty neutral in terms of the political side on this program. But you bring a breath of fresh air to us, and I'm really glad you came today. I hope our audience. Well, thank you. Is, uh, really, that's a great, a real great pleasure. compliment. I appreciate it. Right. No, I pre Thanks, pre pre have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with other guests invited to help you, our audience, improve operations, expand marketing, reduce cost, enable better personnel management, and add profits. Remember, all of our shows are archived at www.blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. You can hear this show and all others at your leisure. If you like the show, tell others about it. Want to make a comment or be a guest? Email us at editor at is-incorp.com. Your host was Don Mazella, Editorial Director of Small Business Digest. Until next time, keep faith with the ideals that made America great, and remember, small business is still the backbone of commerce.